Correct. And Got then it. it will show on the, t then the option will show on top and you can uh, check it. Okay. Hi, David. Hi. Okay. Can we begin? You know, we're always ready. Okay. So yeah, should, we we should we start? Yeah. Hi, yeah. we're going to start? Okay. Yes, that's it. I do see on the screen Raymond Fink. Is that Raymond Fink from San Diego? It certainly is, Rabbi. Nice to oh, see you. Nice to see you. Many years. Oh, great. What a pleasure. It's, uh, yeah, we're, same here. We're, we're excited to study with you, and uh, my wife Rona is right by my side. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Very good. Great to see you. Okay. Let's let's begin. We have an hour, and we're going to be focusing on the on the readings of uh, Rosh Hashanah. Sunday morning, we'll be focused on the um, those who wish to join on the actual prayers. But um, these uh, classes in preparation for the holidays will be discussing the Torah readings, the Torah readings of Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur as well in the last session. Um, so first of all, let me just begin by saying that when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. It appears twice in the Chumash. Uh, it appears in the book of Ayekra in the list of holidays. It says in the seventh month, on the first day of the seventh month, Sichron Trua should be a recalling or sounding of a Trua, a crying out or a sound. That's what the uh, that's what it says. No, nothing more, nothing less. And um, and uh, in the book of Bamidbar, in the list of the, of the festivals to which special sacrifices are brought, there too Yom Trua Yewachem in the seventh month, the first day. A day of trua, crying out literally. The rabbinic understanding is a day of making a sound with a shofar. The word shofar never appears. And that's what the Chumash says about Rosh Hashanah. So in terms of the choosing of uh, a Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah, uh, it's an interesting problem because all the other days, the Torah reading mentions the day. When it comes to Rosh Hashanah, our practice is to have Torah readings on both days of Rosh Hashanah that seemingly have, so we don't mention Rosh Hashanah at all and seemingly have little connection to Rosh Hashanah. So one of the things we're thinking about, of course, is what actually is the connection between the Torah reading, and I would add the Haftorah as well, clearly, and the day of Rosh Hashanah itself, and what light perhaps is it cast on, on Rosh Hashanah? Uh, just to a passing thought about Rosh Hashanah in the Chumash, before we get into the Torah reading, that the day of Rosh Hashanah, it would appear, is a special day because it is a, let's call it a shofar for our purposes. It's the it's sounding of the shofar, some kind of alarm. It's a siren or an alarm that tells us that the seventh month is here. Essentially, it's what we call Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Hashanah is a souped up Rosh Chodesh in the Chumash. And by the way, you can, a sense that that's true can be derived from the, from the Mishnah. Because you open up a tractate, Rosh Hashanah, and you'll see straight up that half of the tractate of Rosh Hashanah is about Rosh Chodesh. So the Mishnah already understood, but I think it's fairly obvious that what Rosh Hashanah is, is a souped up Rosh Chodesh because it's the Rosh Chodesh of the seventh month. The seventh, the seventh day is Shabbat, the seven weeks lead to Shavuot, 
the seventh year in Shemitah. And the seventh month is a special month because in the seventh month, there are two big holidays. There's the holiday of Yom Kippur on the 10th of the month. And there's the holiday of Sukkot on the 15th, concluding with Shmini Yatzeret. And what Rosh Hashanah seems to be in the Chumash is an announcement that these two festivals are coming and as understood rabbinically, and perhaps even in the Chumash, because the Torah says on this day you abstain from work, that Rosh Hashanah perhaps borrows both from the idea of Yom Kippur, the day of Yom Kippur, the solemnity of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, repentance, on one hand, and on the other hand, Rosh Hashanah borrows from the holiday of Sukkot, which is the happiest holiday of the year. Rosh Hashanah is in fact a festival. This accounts for the dual nature of Rosh Hashanah, which is the solemnity of Rosh Hashanah, it's a solemn day. Um, on the other hand, um, it's also a festive day. That's as far as the Chumash is concerned, I think, the simple reading of the Chumash. It's, this, it's the sounding of the shofar on the first day of the seventh month on this special, one might say, sacred month. But in any event, um, the rabbinic tradition is wrestling with this question about what is Rosh Hashanah about? And I think the Torah reading perhaps uh, can be connected to the rabbinic understanding of an aspect of Rosh Hashanah. And let me begin by saying that the, the Talmud tells us actually at the end of Tractate Megillah what readings are read on special days. On Shabbat, we read a part of the Torah and our practice, the common practice is to finish the Torah in one year. In ancient Israel, it was finished twice in seven years, shorter readings, about every three and a half years. But there were also special days and special readings. And the Talmud just says what the readings are. So the Talmud says that on Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah, we read from the Torah, and this, the verse that's cited by the Talmud is, which is in our text, uh, chapter 21 of the, of the book of Bereshit. Now what's interesting is chapter 21, verse one. But what's interesting is that what the Talmud does not say is where the Torah reading ends. Now we have to remember that Rosh Hashanah in the Torah is one day. And in point of fact, in ancient Israel, it was also one day. It's very unclear when Rosh Hashanah be be began to be observed as a two-day festival, even in the land of Israel. Uh, the evidence seems to point that in the 600s, 700s, perhaps, perhaps earlier, there were two different practices within Israel itself. Some people kept two days of Rosh Hashanah, and some people kept only one day of Rosh Hashanah. But my point is, when the Talmud says that on Rosh Hashanah we read Vashem Pokadet Sarah, it's very unclear that on those days where there's one day of Rosh Hashanah, it's not clear where they ended it. Because chapter 21, as we'll see, is about the birth of Isaac and the banishment of Ishmael. But chapter 22, which we read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, is the binding of Isaac, is Achidat Yitzchak. And what I wonder is whether uh, on those in the past, in ancient Israel, when they kept one day of Rosh Hashanah, did they read the Akedah at all? 
Or does it mean they start with Hashem Pokalit Sarah and they read chapter 21 and 22? Or does it mean, no, as we do, we read chapter 21. And the second day of Rosh Hashanah is chapter 22. So that's actually very interesting because the question then is, why did they choose Hashem Pokadet Sarah? Not, not the binding of Isaac. What is it about Hashem Pokad? God remembered, right? Took note, they translated this translation, took note of Sarah as promised. And God did for Sarah as God had spoken. Sarah conceived and bore a son, right? That's how it begins. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is that the choice? Now, let me make one additional point before we get into chapter 21. And that is that when we're looking about connections between two things, in this case, connections between Rosh Hashanah on one hand and the Torah reading on the other, we should never limit ourselves necessarily to one verse. In other words, the reading is, let's say we read primarily the birth of Isaac and the banishment of Yishmael. That's chapter 21, beginning in verse number one. And that's the first 20, 21 verses of chapter 21. That's the heart of the Torah reading. So when thinking about why this was chosen, we shouldn't limit ourselves to just the first verse because it talks about God's remembering Sarah. I'll get to that. But we should think more broadly about other possible connections between the larger story that we find in chapter 21 and the day of Rosh Hashanah. One other preliminary comment, which is this, the day of Rosh Hashanah in the, in the Machsa, in the prayer book of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah has a name. And the name for Rosh Hashanah in the prayer book is Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembrance. That's our prayer. Baruch Hashem, Kadesh Yisrael, B'Yom HaZikaron. Or Baruch Hashem, Melech HaKaretz, King of the whole world, who sanctifies Israel in the day of remembrance. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron. So, and actually in the service of Rosh Hashanah, we're not gonna get into that now, but there are three special blessings recited only on Rosh Hashanah. Ma'achiyot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. The middle one is called Zichronot. <coughs> it's about memory, God's memory of Israel. And that has multiple meanings. And the blessing ends with Baruch Atah Hashem Zohar Habrit, who remembers the covenant. And the instructions that the Talmud gives us in that in each of these blessings, we are to mention a word at least 10 times. That's our practice. So in Zichronot, the word we remember is the word Zikor, or Zikaron, or Zechev, or Zichronot, 10 times. And 10 verses, that is to say. Each verse has the word Zechev. Now the Talmud makes the following comment, <coughs> which is this. The Talmud says, Piktonot, Harehem Kezichronot. Pakad, that's how the Torah reading begins. Hashem Pakad et Sarah says the Talmud in Masechet Rosh Hashanah that if we, if the verses that one reads have the word Pakad and not the word Zohar, you fulfill your obligation of, of reciting the 10 verses with the word that reflects memory. So the Talmud says straight up that the word Pakad can satisfy the requirements in the blessing of Zichronot 
to fulfill that requirement of saying the 10 verses. But what is very interesting, and this begins our study, what's very interesting is that when you look at the Machser and you look at those 10 verses, those verses, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, are the heart and soul of the Rosh Hashanah service, together with the Shofar. After each of the blessing, we sound the Shofar. That is the heart and soul of the Rosh Hashanah Dabu. The Piyutim, the additional poems, the Sanatokef, it's all beautiful and powerful, but that's not what's the heart of the davening. Traditionally, the heart of the davening is, are these blessings. And what's interesting is when you look at Zichronot and the ver all the verses, 10 verses, here's what's interesting. The word Pokad never appears. Even though the Talmud makes it clear that the word Pokad needs to remember, uh, could satisfy that requirement. But the tradition that created for us this master, this traditional prayer book, does not ever employ the word pakad in the 10 verses of memory. And the question is, I think, what's useful to reflect upon is why not? What is the difference between pakad and zakhar? The Torah reading starts with Hashem Pokad et Zarat. What is the difference between Pokad and Zohar? And that's a question I think that everybody walks into the service, whatever service it may be, on Rosh Hashanah. That's a good question to ask, actually. The day is called Yom HaZikaron, we have Zichronot. Why this would, we have other words for memory. The word pokad is a very, the first word of the, first verse of the Torah reading, Hashem pokad and Zorah. But apparently there's a difference between the word pokad and zochah. Luzkar means to remember. Pokad also means to remember. But the word pokad, pei, kuf, dawid, has multiple meanings. And what it actually means, apart from simple memory, it, or to, it means to count, actually. The word pokad, pikudim. The book of numbers is called in the tradition Chomish HaPikudim. But not just to count, but to hold accountable. For example, we have the verse, pokad avon avot avonim, that God visits the sins of the parents upon the children, or visits upon the children the sin of the parents. Pokad avon avot avonim. Story of the golden calf. When Moses prays for the people, God says to Moshe, you can take the people to the land. In the day of my remembering, I will visit upon them their sin. And the next verse says, So God plagued the people because they had made the golden calf, which Aaron had made. So the word pokad, carries with it a totally different valence that very often, very often in the Torah, it means to remember, but it also means to remember and hold accountable. It means to count. It means, actually you can say in English, to remember in English, one word for memory is to recount. It means to recount. Pokad also means to count. And it also means to hold accountable. In fact, even in modern Hebrew, in the Torah as well, a tafkid is an obligation or a job. That's a tafkid. 
Give them that task. So now let's start our Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah, first day Rosh Hashanah. If we look at the story of chapter 21, which is the birth of Isaac, and the banishment of the oldest son, Abraham's oldest son, Yishmael. And when we're reading a chapter in the Torah, and actually it's a very good question that has vexed me for years, don't have a good answer. Say we have a half Torah. Our tradition, the rabbinical tradition, chooses chapters from the prophets. The half Torah is always from the prophets, the prophetic writings, all of them. And when you're reading that story, that excerpt from the prophetic writings, was the intention of our tradition to focus only on that chapter? Or was the tradition presuming that when you read a particular chapter, you're taking into account, as you read this chapter, all the other chapters, all the intertexts? So my own instincts always are to assume that when you're reading anything, you're taking everything else into account. So if you do that, and chapter 21 says, and God remembered Sarah, Hashem Pokad or redeemed, because Pokad can mean to redeem, it means to remember, to redeem. Hashem Omar, as God had spoken. So the first verse reminds us that God had told Sarah that she's going to have a child. And that's chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 18. So this is a fulfillment of what God had said. Hashem Pokad et Hashem Omar. And God did what God had spoken. God promised Sarah a child in chapter 18. When Sarah overheard the angel speaking, she laughed. And God said, why is she laughing? Is anything too difficult? So, but that was when Sarah first hears in chapter 18 that she's going to have a child. Abraham was told already in chapter 17 that Sarah will have a child. And he also laughed. And apparently... He failed to convey this message to Sarah because in chapter 18, she's hearing it for the first time, which is rather remarkable. Sarah desperately wants to have a child that we know. She even gave her, her servant, her handmaiden Hagar to Abraham in chapter 16 uh, to bear a child for herself, a surrogate mother. So we know she wants a child, and God promises Abraham in chapter 17, And Abraham laughs and says, Would that Ishmael live before you? And apparently failed to convey to, to Sarah the good news. So she hears about it in chapter 18, and God says, Why is she laughing? Nothing is too difficult for God. And now in our Torah reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, Hashem Pokadet Sarah delivered, redeemed, remembered. Remembered the promise that God has spoken. So when reading this chapter, of course, we think immediately back to the dual promise that God has made, both in chapter 17 and 18, that Sarah will have a child and that this child will be the covenantal child at Priti Akim That was the promise. But when you read the Torah reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, it's not just about the birth of Yitzchak. Actually, the main story seems to be something different, which is in chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse number seven. Uh, in verse number, sorry, verse number nine. After the child is, after Yitzchak is born and circumcised and nursed and, and uh, 
Sarah completes the nursing process. Right? Weaned, fully nursed. On the day that he was weaned, the nursing is completed. Probably related to the Hebrew word which means to complete. So the completing, the nursing is completing, and one might say, when Sarah completes the nursing, then one might say, in a sense, the child is turned over, in a sense, to, to Avram. We have a similar story in the Haftorah, Kana. She says to her husband, I want to complete the nursing and not give him away, because she had promised to give him away to the temple, to Eli, but I want to wait till I fully nurse him. And then she gives him up, as it were. Still maintains a connection, but she gives him up. So over here, on the day of the completion of the nursing, Avram makes a big party. And now we have in verse number nine, Batera Sarah and Ben Hagar HaMitzvit, Asher Yodavi Avraham Mitzachek. Sarah sees, says the son of the Egyptian woman Hagar, Asher Yodavi Avraham, who had given birth for Avraham, she's the mother of Ishmael, Mitzachek. Mitzachek can mean to laugh. Often it carries a negative valence, it can mean to mock, to taunt. Potiphar's wife said about Joseph, they brought a Hebrew here with Sachek B, with Sachek Banu, to mock us, to taunt us. Sometimes it has a sexual taunting. In any event, the Torah tells us what Sarah sees. The Torah doesn't say what he did. The Torah tells us through her eyes. She sees the son of Hagar, the Egyptian woman, Mitzachek. And that immediately recalls the first story of Sarah and Hagar, which is chapter 16. The Abraham stories in general, and this is a very important point about the story of Abraham, they're doubled stories. Every story virtually is double. So there were two Hagar stories, the two Sarah and Hagar stories, two Yishmael stories. The first is chapter 16, and the second is chapter 21. So the very fact that the Torah tells us that Sarah sees the son of Hagar, the Egyptian woman, mocking, recalls for us, and certainly recalled for Sarah, the story of chapter 16, because after 10 years of marriage in the land of Israel, and Sarah has no children, she turns to Avram and says in chapter 16, take my slave, take my servant, and perhaps I will be built up through her. The idea being that she'll, have, she'll be the biological mother, but I'll be built up, it'll be my child through the surrogate. That was the plan, but the plan doesn't work because in chapter 16, Hagar becomes pregnant immediately. And the Torah told us in chapter 16 that the moment she knew she was pregnant, her mistress, Sarah became light in her eyes of no value. She's pregnant immediately. Sarah's married for many years. So at which point Sarah goes back to Abraham. And that verse right there, very important verse, verse number five of chapter 16. Thank you for putting that on the screen. Sarai says to Abraham, Hamasi, the wickedness, Hamas is wickedness. The wickedness being done to me is your fault, is Olecha. It's your fault. 
I gave you my servant. I handed it over to you. But and when she understood she was perceived she was pregnant, I became a little worth in her eyes. May God judge between us. She doesn't say between me and her. She says between me and you. Now we don't have time to say the whole Abraham story, and that some people have studied it with me perhaps more than once, but obviously this isn't, this isn't written in a vacuum because we all remember that when Avram first had his charge of Lechucha in chapter 12, one of the first things he does, he goes down to Egypt and he says, Sarah is his sister and she's taken. And Abraham gets a lot of wealth, including male and female slaves from Egypt. No doubt Hagar is one of them. So what Sarah seems to be saying over here is, this is not the first time this is happening, that I'm being mistreated, that I'm being, uh, not being respected. This is, this is an old story. I'm right in her eyes. I think we have more, there's more textual evidence. This is certainly what it means. But what she says is, may God judge between us. At which point Avram says to Sarah in the next verse, he says, look, he says, it's your servant. Do whatever you want to her. Sarah afflicted her, inui, afflicted her, mistreated her, abused her, and she runs away. Now, this is a story that lies in chapter 16. Hagar runs away. The angel confronts her in the desert, tells her to return. Hagar doesn't want to return. And the angel says to Hagar, listen, return. And my understanding of the chapter is there won't be any further abuse. And the child will be your child. Counted to what Sarah had planned initially, it would be her child with Abraham, not her biological child. But that was the initial plan. But because of the Inui, because she runs away, the whole story, and because of Hagar's looking down upon Sarah, instead of having sympathy or perhaps gratitude for elevating her status and giving her the opportunity to be Abraham's at least quasi-wife, not simply a servant, um, because of all these people. There's Hagar's looking down at Sarah, there's Sarah's abuse of Hagar, and at the center of it is Abraham. Because Sarah blames Abraham more than Hagar. The dog looks like its master. If she looks down upon me and treats me with little respect, she simply follows you. And from the day we're married or went down to Mitzrayim, that's exactly what's happened. And Abraham's response, which is very interesting, he says to Sarah, listen, it's your servant, do whatever you want. And Sarah abuses her and she runs away. My point being the following, that if we look at the story of chapter 21 of Yishmael, who's about to be cast away, cast out, and almost dies in the desert. And we ask ourselves the question, how does this take effect? And I think the when you read chapter 21 with its sister chapter in chapter 16, it becomes very clear that blame can be shared among all the parties. 
That is to say, Avraham, who's the main character, does not take responsibility. He doesn't say, let's work this thing out. He says, do whatever you want. I got no problem. Do whatever you want. Which ends up, which results in Sarah mistreating her, Hugger running away. The child will not be Sarah's child. It will be Hagar's child. And um, we have, of course, Hagar who belittles or mocks Sarah. And we have Sarah, Inui. Inui is a terrible thing in the Torah. It's one of the covenantal terms in the Torah. You will be, the experience in Egypt was called Inui. So in point of fact, de facto, we're in a situation, and of course, in chapter 21, we have Yishmael, who seems to be mirroring what his mother does. So there are four different actors in chapter 21, and the end of the day, we can say that we're faced with a situation which is a result of previous behaviors. And now what do you do with this? Here we're stuck in a situation where Yishmael is here, and what's going to happen? So Sarah then uh, turns to Abraham, back in chapter 21, Abraham, she says to Abraham, cast away, send away, literally divorce, the maidservant, that's Hagar, with her son. From Sarah's perspective, the misbehavior of Yishmael reminds her of, 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 uh, of, of Hagar, like mother, like son, she says. She belittles me in chapter 16, and her son belittles my son in chapter 21, Mitzachet. Mitzachet could carry a different significance as well, playing off the term Yitzvah. He's saying, what's the big deal about this kid? He's a second, he's a second kid. I'm, I'm the main child. Mitzachet means supplanting Yitzvah, an additional meaning. So Sarah says that can't be. And we know that God had told Avram in chapter 17 that Isaac will be the covenantal child. And now we have Avram's response in verse number 11. And that is, important verse. The matter was very evil. That's a literal translation. Was very evil for Abraham on account of his son. It's actually very striking that Beno is an ambiguous term. He has two sons. He has Yitzchak, he has Yishmael. From the context, it's clear that it means Yishmael. The matter was evil in his eyes on account of his son. And the point is the Torah purposely has used an ambiguous word, namely his son, since he has two. But the context makes it clear that the reference is to Yishmael. And that's significant. If Abraham was walking in the street and you walk, Abraham, what's the name of your son? Uh, my son is Yishmael. That's it? I got another son too, Yishmael. But my son is Yishmael. That's clear, and we understand it. Because Avram prayed to God for a son in chapter 15. He didn't pray for Sarah to have a son. He prayed for himself. And when the child is born, Abraham names the child Yishmael. God has heard. God has accepted my prayers. Yishmael is the answer to Abraham's prayers. His beloved son, Yishmael. So he's not going to do it. means very simply. He's not going to do it. That's what Vayera, he's not going to do evil. And it was very evil in his eyes. So we're here in an impasse. 
He's simply not going to do it. And Sarah's adamant, cast them both out. What, we're an impasse. He's not going to do it. And now God steps in. God said to Abraham, let this not be evil in your eyes concerning the, the, the young boy and your maidservant. Everything Sarah says, listen. You listen to her in chapter 16 when she said, take my servant. You listen then to take her. You must listen to everything she says, including cast them, cast them out. Through Isaac is the one who will carry on the covenantal blessing, but the son of the maidservant will also become a nation. Don't worry about him. It's going to be okay. Be the father of a great nation, but he's not covenantal. He must be cast out. I want to reflect upon this now, and then I'll stop and take comments and questions before we move to part B. And that is that, why must he be cast out actually? The point is this, the casting out of Ishmael can be seen as an actual tragedy. It is, there's a tragic element to the story. He's a, young, he's a young man, okay, he mocks, he makes fun, he, whatever. He's not a murderer. He's, he's mocking, he's being supplanted. So one thinks there might've been a way to keep him, but actually he can't be kept. He has to be cast out, that's what God says. Because even though what I suggested, I think it's, it's correct. I mean, obviously since I suggested it, I think it's correct. That if we look at the, the causes, how did we get to this state? And the answer is mistakes were made by everybody. There's no one person that's, you put it on that one person. There's Sarah's abuse, there's Abraham's mistreating of Sarah actually, and not taking responsibility. Do whatever you want is not the answer. Do whatever you want. And this Hugger's misbehavior. And now in chapter 21, Dishmal's misbehavior. But the fact of the matter is that there's two separate questions. One is, how do we end up in this place? That's one question. And the second question, which is very important is, however we ended up in this place, a lot of mistakes were made, but right now we have a problem. And right now we have to deal with this problem. And the reason he has to be cast out is very simple. It's, it's implied by the text itself. Because as long as Yishmael is around, Avram will never understand what is the truth to the Torah. That Yitzchak and only Yitzchak is covenantal, not Yishmael. He also has a blessing, but it's not the blessing of Abraham, the covenantal blessing, the blessing of the Brit and Habitarim. That's only Yitzchak. The other one has many blessings. Powerful nation, etc., etc. The works. God says, bless him with all the blessings, but not the covenantal blessing. And as long as he's around, Avram will never understand that. And that's the reason he has to be cast out. So whatever Sarah tells you to do, do it. Because we've reached a situation where there is no other choice, actually. 
And it's true, the moment he's cast out, suddenly Abraham begins to see everything clearly. That's really the second day of Rosh Hashanah, that's the Akedah. Sees everything, sees from a distance, sees, understands perfectly, perfect understanding once the obstacle has been removed. So here, I'll make one more comment and stop before we start part B. So, Hashem Pokadet Sarah means Rosh Hashanah actually is a day of, we're thinking about the past. We're also thinking about how to deal with the past. What do we do now? What is the, what's the next step for us? We call Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah. It's really the seventh month. It's the middle of the year, but it is the new year. And the new year means taking stock of where we stand now. And that's exactly one point of this Haftorah, which is that, yes, we are thinking about accountability. Hashem Pokadet Saraka. How did we end up in this place? It's always useful to find out how we ended up in this place. But it's also equally important to understand, okay, this is how we got here. Well, we can't change the past, actually. We can only change the future. So therefore, we have to deal and make very tough decisions about what to do now. And what to do now is clear in the Chumash. Yishmael has to go, because if he stays, they can't, the family can't work. The only way the family could possibly work for any number of reasons is if Yishmael is sent away. That's the first point. Let me stop you for a moment and take comments or questions, and then we'll get to the main point of the, of the Torah reading, I think. Um, Chai, are there any comments or questions in the chat or anybody speak up? First of all, chat is disabled. <laughs> disabled? So, yes. So, we, you know, I just, I tried to go in. This is Michelle Bergman in Brooklyn. Um, so it's disabled. So I don't think anybody could put anything oh, in chat. That's not good. Um, okay. Which is, which is fine. You know, did they, at any rate. Sorry to interrupt so, you, Michelle. Um, I apologize. Yeah. There's a few of you who are still not panelists. I'm going to give you another opportunity to promote yourselves to panelists, and then you'll be able to use the chat. Um, but please feel free to go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Speak up. Okay. So, um, of course, uh, you know, my my greatest uh, angst and anguish is with part B. But I, I will say that listening to you, there really was not a Brera. You know, Yishmael, he had a go. And, and we see today <laughs> that he didn't go far enough away from us. He's still there. You know, his, the generations, he's still there. And he's still causing difficulties. And that is so painful to look at. You know, you look at the Torah, thousands of years, and then you look at the headlines, and, and there we go. Well, I, I will say the following. I think that, um, I think that the... Uh, the um, to infer from these texts a specific political position, I think is fraught with many dangers. I, I don't do that. I think that these texts have a lot of significance for us, obviously. Um, and uh, it is certainly the case that um, the Jewish people in our history and not, not ancient history have found ourselves in extremely vulnerable positions uh, in all parts of the globe. So I wouldn't, but it's certainly the case that part of, uh, part of this covenant, it's very clear. 
the covenant in the book of, of Breshit, the terms that are spelled out to Abraham, know that your descendants will be strangers, enslaved and abused. Those are the terms of the covenant. We didn't write the book, but that's what the book actually says. And whatever the significance of it is, and it's not our problem right now, but, but our task, I think, at least when I teach, is to try to figure out what it actually says. And um, yes, my point, if anything, was Yishmael has to go. But the point I was making is that, despite the fact that to a large extent, it's not his fault. You want to blame anybody. I mean, they're all blamed. You can blame Sarah, abuse, terrible thing. You can blame Abram, you can blame Agar, you can blame Yishmael. It is, reminds me of a play by Eugene O'Neill, which is what, one of his main themes. People that have put, come together, not necessarily bad people. There's no sense here that these are bad people. But there is a real sense that when they put them in the same room, the sparks fly and can't actually function together. That's part of the tragedy here. Uh, anybody else with a comment? Thank you. Rabbi David, do you want to comment on why the Avimelech story is attached to this one? Is it just a technicality to have enough uh, aliyot? Or like, you know, why attach that story to this story? Right, so that is a very good question. I mean, I, I understand the question to be, why do we, why the Avimelech story appears where it appears, which is in between Yishmael and the Akedah, is an excellent question. And they have many thoughts about that, which I like very much, I will add. Right. thoughts about it. But your question is, why do we read it, let's say, the first day of Rosh Hashanah, as opposed to the second day, we want to skip it all together. The story of Avimelech is deeply connected to, 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 to the next chapter. But I, I really can't get into that now. It's deeply connected to the Akedah. It really sets one of the background stories to the Akedah. The Akedah has two main background stories. One is Yishmael and the other is Avimelech. And um, so it's certainly in the Chumash, it makes sense why we chose to read it on day one as opposed to day two, maybe because we want simply the Akedah is so powerful that we didn't want to start with something else. We wanted to go right into the Akedah. Um, but the question is, is, is a good one. Um, okay, let me- Rabbi, um, let's Rabbi? Yes. Rabbi, can I ask a question? Yes, of course. Rabbi, hi, it's Ray Fink speaking. So yes. glad to be able to study. So, Reading the story, one has to be filled with some sympathy, of course, for Ishmael. And you had mentioned earlier on that Ishmael mirrors his mother. And it seems to me that if you know nothing else and you're just reading the story, it all surrounds one word, which is mitzachek. Yes. And as, as, a, as a reader, of the text, it's it's a little bit unsatisfying. So I'm wondering whether you could elaborate a little bit more on that. You know, you asked a very good question because the word mitzachek, I mean, the word with mitzachek and Yitzchak appears multiple times. It appears when Avram first hears the news that Sarah will have a child with him and he laughs. It appears when Sarah um, hears the news and she laughs. It appears in, earlier in chapter 21, it appears again with and it appears later when in chapter 26, when Avimoch peers out the window, 
So the word mitzachek and schok is a central word. Um, let me, I'll make one comment about it because a good answer would require the entire remaining time to really deal with your question. It's a, obviously, and we're not really saying the Chumash per se, we're really trying to get more into the connection to Rosh Hashanah. But I would say the following about, about laughter, that one, I mean, what is a joke about? What is laughter about? That's a question that many have dealt with. But I think one aspect of laughter, one element of laughter, many of the jokes are when suddenly we are confronting a particular event that you see from two radically different perspectives. Someone sees something one way, but then we of course recognize that, I'll give an example in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Bible, the story of Haman. Haman goes to the king and the king says, what should be to the one the king wishes to honor? And Haman says to himself, gotta be me, who's more important than me. And he goes on this whole thing. And at the end of it, the king says to him, okay, wonderful, wonderful idea. Haman says, and take a very important person to lead him around. And then of course the king says to Haman, wonderful, why don't you do it? You lead Mordechai around. That's an example of biblical humor where the person is talking, thinking one thing, but the reader <laughs> or the outsider, hears it completely differently. So the, the contrast between the way somebody hears, the way we normally think, it's suddenly a, a perspective that looks at precisely the same speech or the same event and sees it in a radically different way often leads to, to, to humor. And I think the point over here, and that's, this is the main point I wanted to make, and I'll, I'll mention it now. Uh, there are many, several points here, but I mean, we'll continue next week, so maybe I fill in some of the gaps. Is that the point Hashem Pokadet Sarah Kasher Amar? The story over here is God stepping in. Because if God doesn't step in, then Abraham never sends Ishmael away. He won't do it because it's evil. He doesn't want to do evil. See, very evil in his eyes. But God has a particular plan. God made a covenant. God told Abraham, This is what's going to happen. This is my plan. And the idea that that God had a plan. And the plan actually doesn't seem to be related to anything we think normally could ever happen. Sarah can't can biologically have a child. But the point of the story is, nonetheless, God arranges it such that she will have a child and this child will bear the covenant. And that is what Rosh Hashanah actually is about. If we ask ourselves, what is Rosh Hashanah about? And if we want to find out what Rosh Hashanah is actually about, the best place to look is the, uh, is the prayer book, is the Machser. And when you look at the Machser of Rosh Hashanah, what you realize is that, first of all, what is not there? There are no penitential prayers on Rosh Hashanah. There are no Srichot on Rosh Hashanah. There are no confessions on Rosh Hashanah. The blessing from beginning to end, the core blessing of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship. It's a day of coronation. King of, the, of everybody, not just of the Jews. King of the whole world. It's a day that we proclaim God king. That's what Rosh Hashanah is. And now the second question is, so what does that mean for us? What does it mean to say we proclaim God as king? The chauffeur, like a trumpet, coronet. It's a, it's a, it's a 
instrument that is often played at ceremonies involving coronation or recognition. And what does that mean for us? And what it means is that the day invites us to see the world differently. Because we, we see the world as our world. In this country, we're entitled to the pursuit of happiness. I don't think the Torah knows for pursuit of happiness, actually. Nothing suggests in the Chumash that happiness is the goal in and of itself. But in the Chumash, it's, I put you on earth, this covenantal people, and your goal is to serve God. Avodayim, the Torah makes it clear. They are my servants. I took them out of Egypt to serve me. That's what the Chumash says. Rosh Hashanah is about seeing the world differently. It's about seeing God, the world as God's world. And we are here in the time that we have here to, to be servants. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. It's all about God. It's not a human-centered day. Yom Kippur is a human-centered day. It's about forgiveness. It's about repentance, tshuva, etc. human possibility. Not, that's not Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is about living in God's world. And in God's world, God makes many decisions. And if human beings can't make decisions that accord with God's will, then God steps in. So the idea of these, I connect this, may, which may or may not be correct, but I connect this to the idea of Tzachok. Because what Tzachok is about is seeing something from a different perspective. A lot of humor is that way. You, you think it's going to be one way, and humor often involves the unexpected because we assume that things work a certain way. But no, sometimes they don't. And then we come to that understanding that we're really not in control and that our obligation is to figure out how to serve as opposed to a sense of, uh, of uh, entitlement. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. It's a really unique day. And it actually comes before Yom Kippur. Before you have this focus on the human and the possibility, let's, let's look at the world in a different way. I think that's what Rosh Hashanah is about. And I think that Tzchok can easily be tied in to that, to the, to that idea. Let me... Um, Rabbi? Yes. What yes. you just said, um, talking about the difference between the pursuit of happiness and, and serving God, in a way, the Torah combines them because the whole emphasis on simcha and you know and how it says in the tochacha that all these bad things will happen to you. Right. So it's channeling the the pursuit of happiness isn't for happiness in itself, but it's a form of avoda. So I, I agree. And in the Chumash, when it speaks about simcha in the book of Devarim, says the Hashem Right. It's he's actually standing before God as a simcha, but I, I don't believe that it is a goal in and of itself. I think it's it comes it perhaps comes with a sense of I'm doing the right thing. But you know, it's but but it in the Chumash, you're willing to pay a certain price. Look, our patriarch Yaakov said it about as clear as you can say it. When Pharaoh says, How old are you? I'm not that old, he says. My, my, my life is short and it's been difficult. Short and bad. And he's the one that sets up the covenant for the future. That is the covenant. The covenant is set up for those that come after. That's what Yaakov does. That's what Israel does. He's willing to pay that price so that the future generations can be covenantal. So I would say that 
agree. And I don't think we disagree. I think that it comes, no, to, I... it comes with the, but the fundamental purpose as in many places in the Chumash, I mean, it's pretty explicit. That's the message to Pharaoh. Send the people out, they may serve me. They're my servants. They used to be your servants. And now they're mine. So that's to be an Eved Hashem. Moshe is called Eved Hashem. The highest accolade in the Chumash. He's God's servant. And the servant does what the master has to do. And Abraham does it too. Abraham does not want to send Yishmael away. But he gets up first thing in the morning to do it. Not that he wants to do it. I mean, there's been, I must say, some so much nonsense written about this chapter. It's beyond belief. I mean, it's, just, it's clear he doesn't want to do it. But God says do it. And he's not hallucinating. God told him to do it. He's going to do it. And he gets the first thing in the morning to do it. And he provides them with provisions, enough provisions. But she gets lost. Let me just, unfortunately, we don't have more, too much more time. Let me get to one other point I want to make about Rosh Hashanah. And this reading, maybe next week we we'll, we'll, can revisit some of this. Um, and that's the following. So you, Avram listens to God. He does it in chapter 21. He does it in chapter 22. That's who Avram is. He's God's servant. He's called God's servant. Ebed Hashem. Gets up early in the morning in chapter 13. And he sends her away with the provisions. He gave her enough food. Them enough food. Lechem and Mayim. Lechem means food, not just bread. Gave them food. However, however, but she, she, she wanders and gets lost. So they run out of water because she gets lost. And in the book of Reishit, there are three stories of people that get lost. And it's not just a bad sense of direction. Getting lost, being to'er, vateta, uh, as Avram says, is more than a sense of direction. So not a sense of purpose. In the case of Hagar, it's not understanding where, where you should be. So it's her fault, actually. It wasn't intentional, but she gets lost. She wanders about. And in verse number uh, 15, and the um, water from the jug, there was none left. So she cast the yellow, the child. Yishmo, he was called sometimes a yellow and sometimes called a nar. In terms of the mother, she's called the yellow. However old he may have been, 17, 18, 19, whatever. But for the mother, she's his baby, she's her baby. So she cast this yellow under one of the bushes. And in verse number 16, she stands afar, across. A bow shot away. For she said, I don't want to see the child die. There's no water. We're in a desert. We're going to die. I don't want to see my child, my baby die. She sat across from this child. And she raised up her voice and she cried. And the next verse is very striking. And, but God heard the cry of the boy, the young man. And the angel called down from heaven. What is with you, Hagar? What's your problem, Hagar? Altiri, don't be afraid. Because 
because God has heard the cry of the boy, Bashar Husham, the one who's over there. So of course it's very striking. The question is, what is the Chumash's take on, uh, on uh, Hagar and on, and on Yishmael? So over here, what I wanted to suggest, uh, first of all, the Chumash has a critique of Hagar. On one hand, we're sympathetic to her. She's so upset, she just can't see her child die. But what does she do? She places the child down and she sits me naked across from him. I can't see it. I can't walk in it. I can't see it. So she's not with him. He's going to die of thirst. And she's not with him. She's standing far away. And, the, and she cried, lifts up her voice, and she cries. And the next verse says, God heard the cry of the boy. But the thing is, the Chumash never said the boy was crying. So she's crying. But he saw it called is the feminine. She cried. Never says he cried. But it says, But God heard the cry of the boy. Okay, perhaps he was crying, actually. But my point is, but in the text, he's not crying. The Chumash never says he's crying. So what is that actually about? And if you think about it in terms of, this is the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah. So let me say the following about the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah. Yes, it's about God remembering Sarah. Because the word, I started with the word pokar and the word zohar. The word zohar typically is a positive word. It's memory with an element of mercy. God remembers Noah. God remembers those that seek God. God remembers the covenant. God remembers in a positive way. Zohar typically has a positive valence to it. Pokad is much more complicated. Pokad is complicated because Pokad you remember, but you also hold accountable. So it has a, it's both, Pokad has both elements. Zohar fundamentally is wholly positive. And Yishmael finds himself due to his own mistakes and largely due to the mistakes of others. He finds himself in quite dire straits. He's in the desert, there's no water, and there's nobody by his side. There's one person who seems to care about him. I mean, his father cares about him, but his father sent him away, he had no choice. His mother cares about him, but she stands me naked, right? Me naked. I'm reminded of the beginning of the Chumash, actually. The first woman, God said to Adam about, Adam was searching for a partner in this world, for a helpmate. I'll make a helper from a cross. But this is not a helper from a cross. This is me negative. It's one who cares very deeply. But at the end of the day, usually what's much more important than what's in your heart is what you actually do. And what she does is standing far away because she doesn't want to see. And we also have to remember that she was promised in chapter 16 that this child will be successful. So she's forgotten the divine promise in addition. So here we have the question of this child who is guilty, but not a villain. He's guilty. And he's suffering because of the community, because of the mistakes, because of the society. And God is hearing the cry of this child. And I would say to myself that this text that we read on Rosh Hashanah, actually, 
that we see ourselves in this text fundamentally as a, as a Yishmael. That's what we actually are. We're Yishmael. We're exactly Yishmael. We look at the past year, we begin to reflect upon the past year. We stand before the judge who knows everything. How many of us can say that we're, that we're you know, pure and clean? We didn't make mistakes, small and big, over the past year. Life is very complicated. It's a very complicated story. And what is the response to seeing ourselves in dire straits? The response on Rosh Hashanah is not worse. There are a lot of words, but the core mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah is the prayer with no words. Almost as if to say, it's, it's very elemental. There are no words. We try to explain, the, the, the service is trying to interpret for us what these words might mean, what the sound might mean, but it's a sound. And what the funny part of it is that in the text, not only is it a sound, it's God hears a sound, but there doesn't even seem to be a sound because the one who's crying out, Hagar, is not responded to. Responded to actually with the critique, Malach, what's your problem, lady? That's what the angel says. Well, what's your problem? God has heard the, the cry of this, of this child, the one over there, the one you abandoned. And, you, and she abandoned him because she couldn't see it because of her own suffering, because she doesn't want to see him die. It's too painful for her. But the Chumash is saying something else, actually. It's important to be with the one who's suffering. That's what the Chumash seems to be saying. You don't belong here. You belong over there. Yes, you'll see him die, but you hold his hand as he's dying. And that's standing far away. And the shofar, this is the point of the, the idea of the, what is the blessing on the shofar? The Talmud doesn't have a blessing on the shofar. The blessing on the shofar in the Talmud are the blessings of Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofar. There is no blessing on the shofar. The medievals try to figure out because we blow the shofar before Muslim. So there's a blessing. Rabbeinu Tam thought it was with Koa Bashofar. It's Rabbeinu Tam. The blessing we say is the other Rishonim say, with Shemoa Kol Shofar. The mitzvah of the shofar is to hear it, to hear the shofar. And we can understand it. Maybe it's a Jewish, but it's a good one, which is to really understand, to, to hear the hidden sound of the shofar. What does it, what does it really say? And that's exactly the Torah reading. The Torah reading, God is hearing our cries, but not the cries that are explicated, actually. The one whose cries are explicated is not heard, actually. What's your problem? No, God has heard the cry of that boy. Never says the boy cries, but God is hearing the cry. I'll just conclude with a little story. Um, it was a Rebbe, I think it was Mendel, I believe, Vurka, the Vurka Rebbe. And the story is, my friend told me the story once. He was a friend of the, uh, of the Akatsuka Rebbe. He was called the Silent Rebbe. He didn't speak. Rebbe Hashotek, he was the Silent Rebbe. And one day someone meets one of his Hasidim. Maybe it's after Shabbos. He says, what happened at the, at the third meal, the Sudash Rishi, Shalashudas? What, 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 what happened? So, the Rebbe was silent and uh, everybody listened. That's the point over here. To be, able to, to be able to hear the silence, to be able to hear the cries. You walk in this world, the world is crying all the time. We walk in the streets, we don't hear it. We've trained ourselves not to hear it actually. The world is filled with pain from beginning to end. 
And the point on Rosh Hashanah, the point of the Torah reading is to think about God is hearing the cries of those who don't cry. Those who don't cry. God hears those cries. That is That's the mitzvah of the shofar, to be able to hear that. No words. And the haftor is right. Haftor is chana, which is, she does have words, but it's the main prayer of the Jewish people is not Moses' prayers. It's, not, it's the prayer of chana, where that's the haftor of the first day of Rosh Hashanah. So that's one of the many connections to the Torah meeting. Prayer with no words, prayer with no sound, the words. The, prayer, the cry over here has no words. The deepest feelings are very hard to uh, put into words, actually. We ourselves often don't even understand. We know we're in trouble, but can't actually figure out why. There's a sense of anxiety very often. So Rosh Hashanah is about that sense of anxiety. And as you move towards Yom Kippur, we try to figure it out. So that in Yom Kippur, we can have the, the, all, the, all the confessions and spelling it out. But in, Yom, but in Rosh Hashanah, it's too soon to spell things out. But we, we're searching in, in, in ourselves to find within ourselves the appropriate cries, the expressions of our, of our deepest feelings that we can't verbalize. And that's what we have in the, in, the, in the Kriya as well. So just to summarize what we have in the Kriya, there's about being held accountable. There's an understanding that, and the reality is that you have to deal with the present situation. The reality is that life is very complicated and people find themselves, people, we all make mistakes, but we also find ourselves often in situations which are not necessarily even primarily of our own doing. And then the question is how to deal with those situations. Okay, it's not my fault, but here I am. What, what do you do with it? And then finally, the second half, um, how does one respond in, 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 in times of stress? And that the, the cry that God hears is the cry of the one who's in distress. God does not hear the cry of the one who stands aside, oh, it's so terrible, I can't take it, etc. That's critiqued in the, in, the, in the reading. And I think in the reading, I think the Torah, our tradition, strangely enough, invites us to see ourselves as, uh, as a Yishmael from one perspective. We see ourselves as Yishmael though, but we also see ourselves as deeply connected to, 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 to Abraham. The blessing on Rosh Hashanah is Ocher Abrit. The person we recall is in the end of the blessing of the memory is actually Abraham. It's Ocher Abrit is Abraham, Zichronot. But we do see ourselves, I think, primarily as Yishmael figures. We've made mistakes. We're in bad situations, try to figure out how it happens. Often largely not our fault, so we're not our, only our fault. And that's what it says over here. And that God, we hope, will respond to these deepest cries and God on Rosh Hashanah will hear our cry. The one who is in that place over there. Even if we're, if we're in places we never anticipated we would be and don't wanna be, wherever we may find ourselves, we are hoping that God will, will hear our cries. But I have to stop at this point. I can take one or two comments or questions, then we'll continue with this next week, uh, maybe moving to the binding of Isaac and the Avimelech story, which precedes it. Maybe I'll deal with that soon. We'll see this, so a lot of material here. But uh, are there any comments or questions, just briefly? 
Rabbi? Yes. So maybe actually leading into the next chapter, if when Abraham sends out Yishmael, he, I think to use your words, sees perfectly clearly that Yishmael is not the covenantal son and Yitzhak is the covenantal son. And we know that in the Akeda story, he calls him Bini. Yes, he does. But then it's this, and you, you've addressed this question before, but it still nags at me. The obvious question, if if he's the covenantal son and the, the family is going to continue with him, why did Avraham so readily, I, don't, I shouldn't attribute motives to Avraham, but why did Avraham not resist the commandment of the Akedah? Hey, I'll deal with that next week. He doesn't resist, I can say in one line, why? <clears throat> because it's clear what God is saying. Because at the end of the day, it's part of living in God's world. If you know what God wants, it's what God wants. I mean, it's, it's, there's, a, there's more to it than that, but that's a simple answer. It's not open for discussion. That's, that's, that's clear. Sometimes people talk to you and they say, make a statement and you understand there's room for discussion. And sometimes somebody talks to you and you know that there's no conversation to be had because the decision is, it's already it's a decision that's been made and there's no way that you can actually change that. And that's what Avram confronts in chapter 22. It's not like when God said to Abraham, listen, I'm hearing the cries of Sodom, and I know you're a person who cares very much about justice. <clears throat> so I'm, I can't conceal what I plan to do. At which point Avram says to God, I am concerned about justice, as you said, and is this just? That's an invitation. But when chapter 22 begins and God tested Abraham, we don't hear the tone of God's voice, but clearly there's no room for, there's no room for, for, for discussion. He understands that this is what God is demanding. And the Chumash assumes, whether we like it or not, that God has the right to demand it. And there's actually more to be said about that. That is the assumption of the Chumash. I must say, I've read the Akedah story many, many times. I never had the sense ever that the Torah is bothered by the fact that God makes this demand. Doesn't seem to bother the Chumash at all. It may bother us. It may bother the modern leaders. It may bother even the rabbinic leaders, even the rabbis of old. But in the plain meaning of the Chumash, God has that right. And especially given the case that, in a certain sense, this is completely God's child, because biologically, Sarah can't have a child. Maybe I'll get to that as well. So there is no, you do what God tells you to do if you're sure that God is telling you to do it, if you're not hallucinating. But if you're sure that, I'll give you one other example and I'll have to stop, but let's say the golden calf story. There God said to Moshe, I'm gonna destroy the people. And God continues, leave me alone and I will destroy them. So Moshe picks that up. Oh, leave me alone and you'll destroy them. And if I don't leave you alone, so Moshe picks that up. But there's a, there's a kind of invitation. I think we assume today, and our tradition I think has assumed there's a standing invitation to pray. But God said to Abraham, you, you care about justice, therefore I can't conceal. So Abraham says, is this just? God said to Moshe, leave me alone and I'll destroy them. Says Moshe, no. That's, that's an invitation. Moshe thinks he has a standing invitation and so do we. We have an invitation to pray. But in the Chumash, Avram doesn't have an invitation in chapter 22 to pray. God said, this is what I demand. And Avram gets up first thing in the morning. It's what it means to be God's servant. 
That's just what it means. The uh, demands that the Torah makes are, are extreme. What it means to be a servant. A servant does the will of the master. And the fact of the matter is, even the covenant itself, Gerut, Abdut, and Inui, and you live your whole life that way. It's not that you're going to have a better life at the end. Yaakov doesn't. He ends up in Mitzrayim. He sets up the future. That's how he sees his role. So that's, I think, what the plain reading of the Chumash suggests, whether we like it or not. And that's why Rosh Hashanah is so special, because that is what Rosh Hashanah actually is about. It's about seeing ourselves as sojourners and strangers in God's world, which is not the way we usually see ourselves in this world. But Rosh Hashanah invites us to look at the world from a different perspective, to see ourselves as God's servant. If you see yourself as God's servant, you behave a different way. You do what you have to do, not because you get a reward, not because of any kind of secondary meaning. You don't want to thank you even. You do what you, you're, here to, you're here to serve. And you got to figure out how, how to serve. And that thinking, I think, is Rosh Hashanah thinking. And I think it's a very, very powerful idea within our tradition. But perhaps there's more to be said about it next week. I think I'll stop at this point. Thank you all for joining. It's good to see you. Some people I haven't seen in many, many years. Very good to see you. Thank you so much. Well, to San Diego. It's been a Thank long time. Thank you. And, Thank uh, you. Okay, and all of you, great to see you. And let's uh, hope we continue to learn together with others throughout the year. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Silver. Thank Thanks, you so much. Rabbi. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And uh, please check out the rest of our L offerings at lodatrisha.org. There's over a dozen classes, and they're going to be really, really amazing. So thank, thank you, you so much sir. for joining us. Good night.